Yeah, so this is Golly Chips coming back to you with an episode. Uh, this is Tone speaking. Larry said it's good. You know, early on, I think we were just trying to figure out, like, all right, I bought a mic, now what? You know, so, like, it, it's just cool to see, like, now we're really starting to, to find our groove. We're starting to bring people on, and um, I'm getting really positive feedback and even constructive criticism on things we can improve and, and things like that. So, I mean, I'm, I'm really enjoying it. This is a nice... Uh, change of pace from what we do day to day um it allows us to work that other side of our brain a bit i guess so with that i'll just introduce our guest today we are joined by isioma wabuzer who is associate general counsel and assistant corporate secretary at modine manufacturing um in addition to being you know a corporate attorney she is also you know a zealous advocate for people and for her community she is a uh, 2020 recipient of the 40 Under 40 uh, Award via the Milwaukee Business Journal. She is just an overall um, real one, a woman of deep faith. And honestly, she's someone uh, that I consider a friend. I mean, I've known Isioma since we were 11 years old. And um, a fun fact about our relationship is that we've pretty much attended uh, every school together since uh, sixth grade. And so from middle school through law school, we were always sort of traveling in the same circles. And so I've had a chance to watch her grow closely and, and have always had a deep appreciation for who she is and what she represents. And I just know she's the perfect person to have on this platform as we continue to find our groove and hit our stride. And so with that, I just want to say, Isiyama, thank you so much for giving us your time and, and let's get into it. Thank you. Likewise, Larry, you know, I have a lot of love for each of you. So thank you for having me. Why don't you tell us a little bit about, you know, yourself and your educational journey? Yeah. So as you mentioned, um, I presently serve as uh, Associate General Counsel and Assistant Corporate Secretary for Modine Manufacturing. Um, for those who are unfamiliar, Modine is an international thermal engineering company based out of Racine, Wisconsin. Um, you know, I have a long title, but it's just a fancy word for corporate attorney. <laughs> half, of my, um, half of my work is transactional. Half of my work is securities and board governance. Um, so that's where I am now. But I had a very colored career and um, academic journey leading up to this. And so I'm a product of NPS through and through. I will rep that forever. Um, Milwaukee Public Schools develops and produces amazing people. Um, and I like to think that I'm one of them. So I started off at um, Silver Spring Elementary School, which is now Marvin Pratt Elementary. Um, then, you know, when you move, so my family moved early on. And so we had, I had to change schools. Um, went to Gilbert Stort Elementary uh, for middle school. Went to Samuel Morris for the gifted and talented. Um, <laughs> for high school, I went to King, K House. And then for undergrad and law school, I went to Marquette um, immediately out of law school. So I know I wanted to be in-house. I wanted to be a transactional attorney. Um, I actually didn't take a lawyer job. So I didn't have the lawyer title. Um, the role was actually a law clerk role. And I started in the nonprofit sector for Goodwill Industries of Southeastern Wisconsin and Metropolitan Chicago. Um, was there for about a year, then went into the fintech space for a private equity owned company um, called Advice and Solutions. Was there for about a year. Until um, I landed at Baird, which is an international financial services firm, um, had a pretty <clears throat> successful career there. All things were well, um, but I was really intentional and had clear goals. So I was at Baird for four years until I landed my current role. And I'm relatively new to this, but I'm enjoying it so far. What uh, let's, let's step back once. What made you uh, go, I guess, from uh, law school into like a non-traditional law yeah, that's that's a good question. So um, my first internship in law school, it was actually a really good internship. It was with Harley Davidson Motor Company, a, a pretty, you know, solid yeah. global brand. Everyone knows Harley. Um, and I was in Harley in-house, love the experience. And, you know, you guys know being lawyers, when you have an in-house experience or any sort of legal internship, you know, part of it is networking with those lawyers, getting to know them on an independent basis. Mm -hmm. And so I uh, met with some of them, you know, got their backgrounds, got their histories and a majority of them came from big law. A lot of them came from law firms, the Reinhardts, the Foley's. And, you know, my question was like, you know, why are all these big law attorneys in house? And their response was, you know, they wanted more balance, right? Mm -hmm. They wanted, um, you know, they want to be at more home more with their kids. Actually, I remember a story vividly. Um, the attorney that was my mentor at the time, he said he was working in big law and one of the partners was at the office late. And he knew that the partner had a baseball game for his son coming up. And he 
asks the partner, like, hey, why haven't you gone yet? Why haven't you left? And the partner is like, oh, I'm not going to make it. And that reaction for him, like, sort of clicked for him. This is what he wants to do. How dismissive that partner uh, was of his son's baseball game. (laughs) And so that's when I sort of decided, okay, this is the path that I wanted to take. Now, you got, we were all in law school around the same time. The sort of tone of the legal profession at the time was that in how a lot of law students couldn't go or new law graduates couldn't go in-house right away Mm -hmm. right and that's particularly because in-house doesn't have the capacity to train new lawyers right you know you're so busy and wrapped up in what you're doing you don't get that training that you would in a law firm but I'm like you know I'm going to you know I'm going to beat the status quo I'm going to do what I want it was what I was intent on and again I wanted that sort of balance that came with the in-house experience and so the Goodwill role was posted as a legal internship it wasn't even a law clerk Mm -hmm. position and I saw it and I'm like I really do want to go in-house it was non-profit it wasn't for-profit but it was still an in-house opportunity Mm -hmm. and I had reached out to one of my law school professors and I'm like I'm an attorney now I don't know about applying to this and what she told me it was a black woman at the time she said you want to go in-house right and I said yes and she was like the important thing about being in-house is getting your foot in the door once you get your foot in the door it can manifest in a number of ways but you have to get your foot in the door and that's going to be the hardest step Mm -hmm. and so she was like apply to it you don't know what it'll turn out to be but you'll develop that acumen you need to uh, you know to grow and develop Mm -hmm. in the in-house space and so I applied to this now profit role got it they said okay you're a lawyer we're not going to call you a legal intern but we'll you know um call you a law clerk Mm -hmm. but the benefit of it it still wasn't ideal it wasn't perfect I'll be completely candid I was making pennies for someone who had a law degree you know I think my first yeah I'll be completely I'll be completely transparent I'm I'm not like that I think I was making 34k a year Mm -hmm. part-time no benefits my first Mm -hmm. legal job and but the benefit of it and I'm so in uh, in tune with divine alignment and things being destined but for that position I wouldn't be where I am now I was in a small legal environment where they needed you know they ne- needed my skill set regardless of what they called me mm-hmm. and so I was able to do small claims litigation I was able to do regulatory work you know I was able to manage I started in real estate I managed a real estate portfolio of 60 properties and so I got this like broad acumen and got exposure to so much and it's lent itself to every experience I've had ever since but that's sort of how I got there that's crazy so obviously, um, like I mentioned, I've known you since we were like 11, um, <laughs> but it wasn't until uh, your 2019 TED Talk X um, that, that I think a lot of us found out that you were a dreamer. Right. Um, can you talk a little bit about, you know, what a dreamer is and how that sort of impacted your life? Yes, it's so funny because you say, you you know, you, we've known each other since we were kids. I didn't know till I was 18 that I was a dreamer. <laughs> so I, I didn't know about myself, myself. So, um, <laughs> it's new for so, everybody. That's, that's crazy. Right, yeah. It was news to me too. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> and so I got to college. So um, a dreamer is just a term that this country uses to denote um, individuals that were brought to the United States illegally as children. Um, it, I, it's, I forget what the acronym is, um, but unfortunately for dreamers, that particular uh so all dreamers are undocumented immigrants not all immigrants are dreamers Mm. um so for that particular subset of immigrants dreamers um there's no sort of path to citizenship the only sort of clear path is if you get married to an american citizen a natural born american citizen um and so it presents its own set of hurdles and so you know to elaborate on my earlier point i didn't find out i was a dreamer until it was time for me to apply for fafsa Mm. uh, the free application for federal student a right before you know entering college before going to Marquette um, and the you know one of the realities of, of FAFSA is a benefit that is allocated specifically to U.S. citizens mm-hmm. and so my family you know the reality of most dreamer parents or immigrant parents or immigrants generally is they want to shield their children from as much of that story as possible and so my parents didn't tell me but I'm certain that at least from from their view they were doing it for my protection right the less I knew the better mm-hmm. and so so then it got to a point where they didn't have a choice but to tell me because I'm applying for FAFSA. Marquette is like, okay, to process your FAFSA application, you need to produce a birth certificate. And now I'm 18. You know, I'm not foolish. I'm naive. I'm not naive. I'm like, Ma, give me my birth certificate. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. like, let's just get this. Let me get my FAFSA. And she's like, uh, it's not that simple. So, <laughs> <laughs> so that's when it starts to unravel. And, you know, even then, I knew I was undo- I was a dreamer. I was an undocumented immigrant. But the full implications of that, I'm still even just learning, like even with buying my house in 2020, there were things that came along with that and being an undocumented immigrant. And so, you know, you live and you learn. 
walk us walk us through like the emotions you felt when finding out about your uh dreamer status like i guess like as an 18 year old applying to college you've been working your ass off for this your mom your parents have been pushing you to do it like walk us through the emotions i guess you felt during that time yeah so it was rough as you can imagine i and but like i said like it's gotten it really hit me in law school that's when i really was like it, it took a toll on my spirit because again the realities of it became more and more clear when i first when i first learned when i was you know entering marquette it was i just didn't understand why i had to do so much so i'll be fully again i'll be fully i trust you guys i'll be fully transparent with you all so when i found out i was a dreamer and um you know it was revealed they couldn't process my fafsa application my family had a friend who worked in marquette's administration and they trusted him mm-hmm. so they went to him and they they were completely transparent about my story with him and they're like hey this is our daughter this is the story we want her to go to Marquette you know she's our eldest child my parents had an experience in American college process they got their degrees in Nigeria so we were all sort of experiencing this together mm-hmm. and he's like okay this is what we're going to do he connected us uh with Latrice Harris Collins who then at, at the time Latrice. y'all know Latrice mm-hmm. yes Latrice. Latrice. Latrice and then she connected me directly to Father Wild who you mm-hmm. as you all know is a previous president of Marquette University and I think at the time he was the president I think he was yeah yeah and so Latrice was like you need to write a letter directly to Father Wild I will make sure it gets to his desk and you need to explain your situation I was completely transparent told my story in the letter got it to Father Wild then they were able to find a grant for me and that's how I was able to make it through Marquette but at the time you know I was just thinking I just need to get to college like I need to figure out how we're going to pay for college and so while it was like burdensome and while I was like okay why do I have to do all of this I just had a clear goal and again like I didn't have time to sort of feel what the realities of that and the implications of that meant you know and then again as I went through school and then when I got to law school that's when it really 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 hit me we probably experienced college a lot differently than you Mm -hmm. because of your dreamer status right like like I don't know all of the implications of it right but can you talk a little bit about some of the implications right like I think if you have like three misdemeanors or three misdemeanors yep. or three traffic violations or something along those lines, you can get deported, right? Yeah. Like so, like so, like right. just, what was that? <laughs> what was the shadow of deportation like around you as you're sort of going through college and 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 living your life? Yeah. So, like for so one practical thing, I didn't stay on campus, right? Mm-hmm. And looking back on it now, like. I felt like I did myself such a disservice. But when you find to pay for college, you don't got money to pay for no extra, right? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. what are the dorms? $10,000 a year? So I'm just trying to get the bare minimum. I'm trying to get books. I'm trying to get tuition. And I'm trying to eat. I don't have an additional $10,000 to pay to live with you guys and experience with you guys when I have a home in a room 20 minutes away. Mm-hmm. And while it sounds like um, superficial, but that's such an integral part of the college experience when it you're is, thinking yeah. about it, right? Mm-hmm. Living on campus and frat with people and getting to know you know people in your class and other people like that's such an integral that has its implications and manifests itself in different ways as you grow you know some of the other realities um growing up because my parents knew but they didn't disclose it to me they were very hard on me like you can't get in trouble you can't don't and I always thought you know they're foreign parents there's an element of that to all foreign parents (laughs) Mm -hmm. like like they don't play that's across cultures that's across nationalities and so I always thought that's what it was until again when I became a dreamer I connected the dots and it's like you don't have room for error you don't get second chances as an undocumented immigrant and so I was already reared to just be a good kid like I didn't do a lot I didn't even play around with a lot of stuff that you know kids they try weed mm-hmm. they do this I never did any of that like because mm-hmm. I was just always reared and it was always ingrained in me to you have to be good you can't get in trouble you can't have any police interactions so taking a step back let me tell you guys a full story when it really started to settle on me the implications of being a dreamer was in 2012 so 2012 coincidentally 2012 was the year I started law school 2012 was the beginning of of the second term of the Obama administration. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 2012 was when he had the executive order deferred action for childhood arrivals, which is temporary relief for dreamers. Um, So I'll tell you guys the full story again. So I had gotten my Harley Davidson internship um, before I got to Marquette. So Harley Davidson, it was the first time they had reemerged this legal internship. They started um, interviewing prospective students. So students who had already gotten accepted to Marquette, one else, Mm -hmm. but 
hadn't started yet for this internship. By the grace of God, I was one. Of, I was the person who got it. So sometime during my first year of law school, I get called into the administrative office at Marquette Law. And I forget the name of the administrator at the time. He's no longer with Marquette. And he's like, we have an issue. Like, we have something to talk about. And I'm like, I, you know, I didn't do it. Like, what's <laughs> I'm like, why am I being called to the principal's yeah. office? What is going on? And he's like, it's Harley Davidson. And I'm just like, okay, you know, yeah. what about Harley? I hadn't even started at Harley yet. And he's like, I don't know how this came about. I still don't know if he was being completely transparent with me. But he said they saw my undergraduate application. They saw my law school applications. And I had two places of origin. So when I applied to undergrad, I had put Brooklyn, New York. And when I applied to law school, I had put Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And so the reason I had put Brooklyn, New York is, again, in an effort to protect me, my parents had always told me, just tell people you were born in Brooklyn. That's where you were born. That's where you were born. (laughs) I'd like, you know, but that's that's how paranoid immigrants mm-hmm. are right yeah. so they didn't want anyone connecting the dots if they said milwaukee they probably would have thought oh they can go to the hospital and check which hospital so they just picked somewhere that was distant so they like just tell people you were born in brooklyn so when i applied to undergrad i put brooklyn new york when i applied to law school by then i knew i was undocumented so i yeah. I put Milwaukee and I didn't remember that I had put Brooklyn on my undergraduate application. They claim that's how they found out I was undocumented. I don't know if that's true, but that's the case. And they're like, well, if you're undocumented, you can't go work at Harley. So that, that wow. that's what they called me in the office to tell me. They're like, we have to figure out if you can actually like go work at Harley by the grace of y'all. God is like, and, mm-hmm. and this is why, like, I don't believe in God because anybody told me to believe in God. I believe in God because I've seen what God does. Mm-hmm. And what are the what are the chances that the year I start law school, the year I get this job at Harley Davidson is the year that President Obama has this executive order? Mm-hmm. So I told him I was like, Well, I have DACA. I was like, I have a work permit and a doctor. He's like, oh, Okay, we're good. And then I just burst out crying and he's like, Well, what's wrong with you? Like, why are you crying? Everything's okay. And I'm just like, I I didn't expect this, right? Like you just unloaded this on me. And again, it's just that realization of the real life implications of being a dreamer, something I didn't realize prior to law school. So can't take trips, right? I need this work permit and I have to produce all this documentation every time I start a job. Even in my current role, I still have to produce this documentation. A big thing, I can't vote. Tone, you and I were in the same college, right? We were both poli-sci majors. Mm -hmm. I'm a political scientist by nature, right? (laughs) Like I understand politics. I know probably more about our government and political system than the average American layperson. I can't engage in the political process, right? Particularly a political process that impacts me more than it does the average citizen, right? The decisions Mm -hmm. y'all make and how y'all choose to engage with the political process determines my immigrant status, determines how I survive and thrive in this country as a black woman, but I can't engage in it, you know? And those Mm -hmm. are some of just the realities that you know started to reveal themselves as time went on i'm sitting here and i'm just like you know we were in the the same rooms like uh middle school national honor society high school national honor society ib program Mm -hmm. undergrad (laughs) law school but i'm I'm just gaining so much more appreciation for you because i'm like i thought i had to grind but it's like you had to grind times three times four you know 10x what i had to do like you had to be more intentional and, and more aware of what you were doing which and you had to grow up probably faster than what you than the average kid right like that's, absolutely that's like i just even now i'm paranoid right like to your mm-hmm. point you mentioned this earlier like the misdemeanor thing that is a um so to, to connect the dots for folks that is one of the factors for daca so there are seven factors you have to meet to even be eligible for the protections that are afforded to people under deferred action for childhood arrivals one of those is that you can be guilty of a serious misdemeanor and or three or more like minor misdemeanors but people don't realize a minor misdemeanor is a traffic a traffic ticket Mm -hmm. right so three or more of those that could jeopardize your DACA eligibility right and so I'm so cognizant like for me I think worst case scenario you know for you it might just be a little ticket for me Mm -hmm. it can have so many other implications and so I'm cognizant of my spaces I'm cognizant of where I'm at I'm cognizant of who I'm around Mm -hmm. I can't just be anywhere with anybody Mm -hmm. right again so much I'm always thinking of right place right time wrong place wrong time Mm -hmm. and so I'm just so like so paranoid is a bad word, but I'm just very cognizant mm-hmm. and intentional, mm-hmm. right? So then, like I said, known, I've known you like since we were 11. Um, I find I find out about your dreamer status via this TED talk uh, in 2019. Can you talk a little bit about what led you to sort of uh, coming out and, and telling? Or I don't know if coming out is right the right terminology, right? right but, but coming out and, and telling your story 
Um, and then why sort of doing it via such a large platform? Yes. So it's so, so there's so much about like I, I'm very transparent, but there's so much backstory people don't know. So in 28, so one of the things I'm always once I found out my dreamers uh, that I was my dreamer status, it was so important to me to be well connected and well respected. Like it's I've always been that way, but there's power in vulnerability and there's power mm-hmm. in visibility. Mm-hmm. So I'm like the more people I have on my side, the more that I pour into community, and it's it's sort of like a um, it's sort of like an imposter syndrome thing that's sort of working because it's this desire to always feel like you're good and like to prove that you're good enough. Mm-hmm. But I'm like, okay, I have to like be in my community. I have to do good. I have to be like this sort of model citizen. And so part of that, part of that is just being overly engaged. Like I'm always doing something. I'm always serving in some capacity. And so in law school, I was on the national exec board for the National Black Law Students Association. Um, the National Black Law Students Association is the long, oldest and largest student-run organization in the United States. Um, and so I served on that, and every year they have an annual convention. Um, the year I was on the board, it was in Milwaukee, and I think that was maybe the 47th, 48th year. And so a few, late, few years later, they were celebrating their 50th. Um, that was in 2018. By the time um, the 50th rolled around, I was already out of law school. I think I was in like my second career in law, but alumni, the practices, alumni all get back together for the convention, particularly one of that magnitude. And so it was in Brooklyn, New York. So I go, it's this big convention. It's a big deal. Everyone's down there. And um, for those who are unfamiliar, Angela Rice, she's a lawyer and she's also an alumni of the National Black Law Students Association. She also used to sit on the board. So for the 50th, they had her come out and speak. um, And she had a really interesting session. It wasn't like a keynote address, but Mm -hmm. she does like this, like, talk where it's like a working talk so she said hey we have all these legal professionals all these lawyers all these future legal professionals in the room let's strategize it's not for me to speak to you let's put our minds together so we can do some implementation when we get back to our respective communities so they had two mics in the room and everyone lined up to speak and so you know everyone got some you know when it's time to talk and you can talk with a celebrity everybody got something to say whether mm-hmm. substantive or not <laughs> so the yeah, line it's a, room, a room for lawyers lawyers, too. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. lawyers yo that's one thing i've realized early on is that lawyers love to talk about themselves and talk about some shit yeah even if it's not germane like they just love to talk so as you guys can imagine the two lines got long very quickly but at that time i want to say we were in the trump administration and um and it was like the it was around the time of the muslim ban or something like that immigration Mm -hmm. was a hot topic at the time Mm -hmm. and my point of getting up there to say was to share that we're the national black law students association but what we've gotten into the mistake of doing as a people is that we let the media dictate what's important to us and I wanted to share my immigrant story so that they knew you guys are legal professional and they're black immigrants that look just like you and so when you go back to your respective communities it's not enough to work on you know financial equity and empowerment it's not enough to work on our education systems we have to work on all the hot topics lgbtqia gun violence immigration because it impacts all of us so i got in line ready to share that story i'm at the end of the line and i start getting the jitters because i had never shared with anyone that i was an undocumented immigrant So I started getting the jitters and I go to turn around and one of the young ladies who was like guarding the line, I was, so there was somebody behind me that wouldn't let her get in line. And I was like, you know what? I'll just go sit down. She can take my spot. And the young lady who's guarding the line, she's like, you can go sit down, but if you go sit down, I'm not giving her your spot. So again, me just being a woman of faith, I'm like, that's Mm -hmm. God telling me to stay up here. So I stayed up Mm -hmm. there. I'm the last person in line. And I talk, I get up there. I tell them, you know, greetings, everyone. Um, you know, uh, uh, corporate transactional attorney i'm alumni of the national exec board blah blah blah. start stop start listing off my accolades and i end with but i'm an undocumented immigrant and i go on to explain how we need to fight for people in our communities because they look and live just like you and it's about like a three four minute like spiel Mm -hmm. and i just thought you know i'm just speaking from the heart sharing my story all of a sudden it's a standing ovation the whole room Mm -hmm. is like clapping mind you it's like a thousand lawyers a thousand law students and i'm like whoa and then angel's like can somebody go get that sister a hug and then like three minutes later her assistant comes up to me he's like Angela wants to talk to you and I'm just like okay this is great but all that to say that's when it clicked for me okay this is a story that needs to be told Mm -hmm. like more people need to know this so I get back to Milwaukee and I'm like okay what can I do what can I do again the Muslim ban was a hot topic I I think this was maybe it became a hot topic maybe a little after the conference so the first thing I do being politically minded was call Congresswoman Gwen Gwen Moore's office so I call her office and they're like okay, this is what we're going to do. 
They're like, you're going to send us a picture and she's going to, her and a, a few other Democratic folks are going to address, are going to stand on the steps of Congress and address this issue. And we're going to hold up your picture as one of her constituents. And if you know me, like, I, I don't know. That's, yeah. That wasn't going to work for me. And mm-hmm. she it's still well-intentioned, right? But for me, I'm so big on like impact. Like, mm-hmm. I don't want anything to be momentary. How, how are you putting my picture up there going to help anyone like mm-hmm. me? How's that going to help my situation? And so I'm like, you know what? Like, um, thank you. I appreciate it. But then I started, I was like, no, I'm not going to participate in that one. And I want to own my narrative. And so somehow, I don't know, the experience when Angela clicked in me the idea of a TEDx talk. Mm-hmm. And I had a sorority sister who had done a TEDx talk maybe a year or two prior. Mm-hmm. And I reached out to her and I said, hey, I want to do a TEDx talk. And she's very critical. Like, I love I love people like that who aren't yes, who men and women. And who she's like, OK, you're going to do a TEDx talk. Tell me what it's going to be about. And I shared with her my story. So that's like the, the first time she heard it. And she was just like, that's going to take you all over the world. She's like, you need wow. to do it. And so she gave me the name of all the people I needed to connect with at UWM. She said, email these people. And I'm sure, you know, you'll be well on your way. And I emailed them and the rest of it's history. It was a nine month process, um, you know, really therapeutic, really insightful, a wonderful experience. And I share my story. What was it like April 13th, 2019, something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. No, I, re- I remember watching it and being like, what? Like I was just, we were just at a party, like I, like a like we were just strolling, you know what I'm saying? Like not, a couple years ago, I'm like, what the hell? Like I, you know what I'm saying? Right. I, I guess I did, I was just like, nah, bro, like that can't how you know what I'm saying? How did I never know that? But uh, but I, after I found out, it did it did uh like I started following more of the DACA because at the time it was like you know a lot of people were uh, being publicized, like kind of mm-hmm. like the. The Gwen Moore thing, right? Like yep. they would take pictures, and I do, I do think that that's more performative, right? Like it's right. just like, uh, yeah, look at look at her. So one thing you mentioned uh, is that you didn't fully understand the implications of your dreamer status um, until law school. You're kind of in a situation where you're an attorney, but the laws are not <laughs> set up to protect you. Um, and so I guess I'm wondering, what is the current status of DACA? Mm. Because my understanding is that there isn't a pathway to citizenship. And so, like, you just touch on that. Yes. So, there's still... So, uh, the government... I have so many gripes with the government right now. I feel like every party is failing. Like, we have a lame duck Congress. um, And the American government is not working for the American people. So, that's my baseline right there. Um, Their DACA is still in place. So, during the Trump administration, DACA was challenged. It went up to uh, the Supreme Court, but um, it was uh, it was thrown out on procedural grounds. So I think the, the Supreme Court's decision was like, he could bring the challenge, but not in the way he brought it, something like that. So um, at that time, when the Trump administration was challenging DACA, they were not accepting any new applicants. So existing applicants still had the DACA protection, but no one could new, like newly or freshly apply. Since that's been thrown out, they've resumed accepting new applications. The security we have now is that we're under the Biden administration, which doesn't, doesn't have a stern or harsh approach on immigration or immigration reform. Now, they were trying to get immigration um, legislation passed through and codified through um, budget reconciliation. That's what they were trying to do. But, um, and I forget what the role is, but um, there's someone when they're trying to pass a package through budget reconciliation, I don't know if it's the congressional parliamentarian, I forget what their role is, but they assess the bill to make sure that they feel like everything in it is germane to budget reconciliation. Mm -hmm. The woman who was in that role currently decided that she felt the immigration portion it it wasn't and Mm -hmm. she suggested and advised that that portion of the bill be thrown out Mm -hmm. so it's still being sort of volleyball through through congress there is no real um legislation on the ground i think there are three main main senators year over year that continue to propose things um but like all things there are certain things that rise to the top and then that gets to the bottom of the agenda so right now everyone is worried about the economy and ukraine you Mm -hmm. know and gas prices and rightfully so right but (laughs) once again immigration falls to the bottom of the agenda and so there's still no permanent path to citizenship for dreamers um still the only sort of quickest and you know uh least tenuous path to uh, to citizenship is to get married to um, a natural born U.S. citizen. Um, And it's unfortunate, right? Because if you look at me, I'm 32. 
I'm 32. I'm a lawyer, you know, and at this rate, what? I'm going to be almost retired before you guys come up with a permanent solution, mm-hmm. right? You mm-hmm. know, it's, it's wild. It's a, it's a wild thing to even wrap your head around. And part of me, it's gotten to the point where I'm like, is this intentional? Right? Like, is it, like, are you, is, is there some sort of, you know, um, malicious intent behind me? Because at, what is the, what is the rationale? This is something you've been talking about for two or three decades. It really picked up after 9-11 because they got so stringent with immigration policies. Mm-hmm. What can fellow attorneys do, fellow uh, American citizens do uh, to sort of help uh, mm-hmm. the, the whole DACA situation? Yeah, that's a good question. Thank you for that. Um, you know, the first thing I think is just sharing stories for, you know, what I, I love about my friends and my network and people like you all is like, when I share my story, you guys really went and listen, right? Like you talked about it, you bring it up. And it's not like every time you meet somebody, you're like, okay, so this is what's going on with immigration. But so much of like issues in our society, not just immigration, gun reform, sociopolitical issues, you know, criminal justice, police brutality, all of it, people just don't know right? Like people are not well-informed. We don't live in a well-informed society. So the first piece I say is just educating people. If people can't find the information for themselves, that they're not going to seek it out the way they learn is by people telling them. And so just educating people on the issue, letting people know that it's not a Mexico versus U.S. issue. It's not a Latinx versus white people issue. You know how many immigrant, undocumented immigrants are European? Mm -hmm. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, how many undocumented immigrants are Black? You know, if you've ever stepped in a detention center, you would see that for yourself. And so, you know, just sharing the stories and letting people know that this impacts you a lot more than you think it does. And then when you do have the opportunity, engage in the political process. Somebody like me can't. And so I rely on people who I care about, who I love, who know me to to engage on my behalf right and engage in a way that serves my interests just as much as theirs and so I can't pick a senatorial candidate that's intentional about immigration but you can mm-hmm. right I can't pick a, a assembly member or whoever or a sheriff or whoever that's you know not you know tough on immigrants and things but you can and so engaging in the political process because as much as you say oh it doesn't mean anything it's a privilege you have that some people don't and then when it is a topic of discussion and when you do have an opportunity to present it to legislatures or whoever like call the question like what are we doing about immigration reform what are we doing and it's not just immigration reform what are we doing about all these issues that we claim are important but we haven't had much traction on right and so those are three ways right away i mean the reality of it is aside from our individual lives, sort of these like um, social issues, a lot of it is out of our control. Um, But all we can keep doing is talking about it, right? From the outside looking in, you know, I noticed that you turned your, you're probably one of the biggest tests in your life into your testimony. Mm -hmm. You share that with the world. Mm -hmm. At the same time, I do think just again, from the outside looking in, um, you were able to authentically, you know, build your brand Mm -hmm. um, and your platform. Um, I, I am Isioma.com, uh, <laughs> the dreamer, the dreamer next door, Ted talk. You also turned that into a not a 501 C three organization. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about just how you're able to turn your test into a testimony and also how that also correlates to building your platform? Yeah. So the first thing, and I, I hope you guys believe this. I like to think you guys believe this. I've always led with authenticity because it's hard to maintain anything, but right? Mm -hmm. Like you, you can only go so long not being authentic. It's hard to maintain a facade. Mm -hmm. And so I'm big on authenticity and I'm big on genuine relationships and you only get genuine relationships by being your true and authentic self. And so I knew whatever I want, I I was going to do, it had to be transparent and it had to be completely, completely me. And so again, that started with me owning my narrative and sharing it via a TED talk. Another thing for me, I'm big on success. Like I come from an immigrant family, like, um, you know, my parents have made significant sacrifices for me to be where I am today and so I'm big on legacy and 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 having have being successful right and you know capitalizing on the American dream and everything that they say we can't have right and so that that that's huge for me and when I look at the most successful people and I always sort of ruminate on this there's so much more than like their title there's so much when you look at Beyonce you do her disservice by saying she's just a singer Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. when you look at Oprah you do her disservice by saying she's just a journalist Right. When you look at Jay-Z, you do him a disservice by just saying he's a rapper like he's Jay-Z, but he's a rapper. He's a business. All these things, all these titles come after. Mm -hmm. But you know them as a person first. And so the big thing for me was like, yeah, being a lawyer is how you like get your name out there and how you leverage your platform. But how do you become so much more than a lawyer? And then I had to really sit down and think. And I had a lot of conversations with God, like, what are you here to do? 
Mm-hmm. I feel like we get to a stage, we go through college and you're supposed to take these courses and get these jobs and get these degrees and get these salaries. And then at a point you're like, okay, what am I doing all this for? Mm-hmm. Right? Like, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm making money, but when I'm not here, what more is there here? Right. And again, that goes back to legacy. And so I had to really like dig in myself and say, well, what is my purpose? And I, what brings me fulfillment, what brings me joy is knowing that I have made life easier for someone else. Right. And that when I'm no longer here, that, that sort of effort and that contributions live through people and it lives through all the things that I've done when I'm not here and so I was thinking how do I like enrich how do I build a brand around that purpose right and around enriching people and enriching lives and enriching my community outside of me and just being a lawyer and it start again it, it came back to like who are you and what do you represent I'm black I'm a woman I'm an immigrant so 90% of the time anything you see me do anything you engage I engage in ties back to one of those three things right it ties back to me and I again that's leading with authenticity I feel like a lot of times people get successful and they just want to be out there right so they attach themselves to anything do anything say yes to everything but that's not sustainable right (laughs) like Mm -hmm. if you just tie yourself to anything just because you want to get your name out there or if it's good to add to your resume or you know it looks good from anyone else's assessment you're not going to be doing it for long um and so I I did this nonprofit again to sort of alleviate (laughs) to make life better for those who live like me who are who've experienced or are experienced what I've experienced did that and then I like just continue to do work in the community and attach myself to causes and issues that again uh, that uh, that reflect on who I am and serve communities that look like people that I am but I build with authenticity and then I I try to be transparent right like um again there's strength and vulnerability there's strength and visibility and I think when people know that they're getting the real you like they're so more they, they're so much more inclined to connect to that right I, I get people like I, half of my time I spend on Instagram talking to people in the messages because it's <laughs> you know they've, they've picked up on something they can relate mm-hmm. to or they've picked up on something that has piqued their interest or they want to hear more about something and I think you know when you're transparent and when you're vulnerable people are just naturally gravitate to that mm-hmm. I think you know you, you spoke on something as far as like I mean we had a, a whole episode on authenticity and I guess like since you have a brand at this point, I guess, how do you go about protecting that brand and making mm-hmm. sure like you're attaching your name to the right, you know, person or right idea? I guess, what is your thought process when, when thinking about what your next move will be? Yeah, so the first thing, and this is something I'm, I haven't mastered it. I'll be completely candid. I'm still learning to not just say yes to anything, but I'm in a point in my life because you need to balance that with your peace, right? Your peace mm-hmm. of mind and your mental health. If it, if something doesn't get me excited, if it doesn't get me riled up, if it's not a vehement yes, then it's a no. Because I think that breeds, when you're not excited about a commitment from the beginning and when it becomes too laborious and when it feels mm-hmm. like a task, it, it breeds resentment, right? And when something breeds resentment, so one of my like core values tenets is excellence. Mm -hmm. If I only attach my name to excellence, everything I produce is excellence. And if you are resentful about something you're doing, a commitment you have, you're not going to operate at a level of excellence. Right. And so that's big for me. So I'm in, and I'm still learning it again. I haven't mastered it, but if it's not a vehement, yes, it's a no for me at this stage in my life. Um, Another thing is when it comes to like attaching myself to people and things, I'm very big, like I'm a rebel and it's not, to be a rebel just to be a rebel but I feel like we're such in a space of group think and with social media and you know the day and time and age we live in people just co-sign stuff just because that's what everyone else is doing Mm -hmm. and I'm so intentional about like assessing things and thinking deeply deeply about things a prime example is like the current elections in Wisconsin like people co-sign people and go along with people because that's their friend or Mm -hmm. you know because they're black and this and I'm always gonna call the question I'm like well what has been done what does their you know record look like what have they accomplished and if it does if it doesn't speak true to me and my interests I'm not going along with it and so I just always go back to who are are you what do you represent and and what and and is what you're attaching yourself to and or who you're connecting yourself to true to that so so i guess one thing that i'm i guess just just hit me is like a, a big part of that is just your identity right mm-hmm. and i think yep. for for you though a lot of times like finding out your dreamer or whatever mm-hmm. your identity kind of gets flustered a bit i guess yep. what keeps you grounded yeah it, it does get flustered but like that dynamic is everything that makes me who I am, 
right? Everything that I am is because I'm an undocumented immigrant. Mm -hmm. The way my parents reared me, the values they instilled in me is because they understand the sacrifices they have made, right? One of the implications, and this is one that I share quite, quite frequently, my parents left, so what am I, 32? My parents came to the United States 33, no, maybe 31 years ago. When they left Africa, that was the last time they saw their parents, right? Okay. They didn't get to see them again until they were in graves, right? Mm -hmm. Until they were tombstones, until they were caskets. Until you know what that's like, like you don't, the value I put in how I move and who I am and how I protect my brand and my image and my last name is attached to that sacrifice. Like I cannot let any of that go in vain because that's a sacrifice that most people will never make. No one will ever voluntarily make it and people never wish to experience it, right? And when I keep that in mind, it, it, it informs my decisions. It informs how I move. It informs the integrity and the, and the things that I do in my value system. And so, yes, like my, my, my sort of um, identity and who I am and what I represent and my reality sort, sort of um, sort of shifted as I was experiencing that dreamer thing, but it also came into formation, mm -hmm. right? It became uh, so much more clear who I am and what I represent. And I stood so much more firmly in that. Switching gears a little bit from afar, or I guess from across the street, you obviously were at Bayard. From my eyes, you were crushing it. Like you were, <laughs> you were probably on a Bayard billboard. Like, like you were having a very successful stint at Bayard. Mm -hmm. And so when I saw like the LinkedIn update that in you that you had switched not only jobs but you switched industries, right? You went mm -hmm. from from financial services uh, even to manufacturing, and so you know I was curious about that, right? I texted mm -hmm. you, we exchanged some messages, um, but what stood out to me was that you're very strategic and intentional mm -hmm. with everything you do, um, and so we have some listeners that are also early career professionals that are trying to figure out um, where they want to go and things like that, so. I guess what I'm asking is how do you evaluate opportunities? Um, and then is there a framework that you could share with our listeners uh, for as you, as you make moves and whatnot? Absolutely. I think the big thing first is that you have to always be like reevaluating your career, where you are and where you want to go. I think a lot of people, and it's not just legal professionals, but we don't have clear vision as to what direction we want our career to go in. And that it's not that there's nothing wrong with that, but understand that if you don't have some sort of clarity around that, you'll be moving, moving pretty aimlessly. It's so funny you say that, Larry, because I get the same reaction from people, even to this day, I've been in my role for almost three months now. And people mm -hmm. are like, you left Bear, you left Bear, like, well, you were the poster child for Bear. Mm -hmm. And one thing, and I'll say this particularly to people of color, particularly to Black people, Baird is a, was amazing. I had it, I it put me in positions to make certain moves in my career and to be the woman I am today, and it leveraged my. But I poured just as much into it. And you have to get to the point where people can't pay you in perks anymore. Mm -hmm. And I think from the outside looking in, people were like, "Oh, like they put you everywhere, they promote you, they put you out there." That's so. 21, 22, maybe even 25 year old Isioma, that had me bright eyed, you know, like that was what I wanted my name out there. I wanted to build my reputation. I wanted people to know me. But at a certain point, again, when you get back to legacy building, more different things matter. And that's where I was in my career. Like, you know, compensation is a huge factor for me now as I'm building and as I'm looking towards the next stages of life of building a family. One thing that's very clear for me, I sat down and evaluated where I wanted to go. I want to be general counsel for a Fortune 500 public company. Mm -hmm. What the skill set I need to attain that was very different from the skill set I was acquiring at Baird. Not to say that, you know, they're, I, I'm so intentional and I'm so like, go get it, that I would have made a way out of no way. But there was a lot clearer path to that with the opportunities I was being presented mm -hmm. with. And the reality of it is, at least for the past year, it's been an employee's market, right? So it really forced me to sort of evaluate the opportunities that were being presented to me compared to my current situation and say, does my current situation make sense? Mm -hmm. And for me at the time, it just didn't make sense. So my move and my shift was more about where I was going than how good I was currently, I was currently at, if mm -hmm. that makes sense. No, you it know? does make sense. Yep. <laughs> you know what? What role does faith play in your decision making? So faith is my North Star. Like that'll always be my North Star. And you know, I'm a, again, I'm a, I'm, I'm, I'm big on being honest. I'm, I, I'm wayward on my faith path, right? Like I'm because I'm so busy in my life. Faith can sometimes be the bottom of the totem pole for me, and I know that's not right. And I'm constantly reevaluating and being intentional with like you got to make time for that because God might be at the bottom of your list, but you always at the top of His, mm -hmm. right? And so. But faith is my North Star. Like, I, 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 
before I move a job, before I even leave a job, like, and, and you know, so the benefit of coming from a Nigerian family, like that people, that culture is so faith led, right? Like my mom still calls her pastor. She has a pastor here. She still calls her pastor in Nigeria. So before I leave a job, before I take a job, the first thing we do is commit it to him. You know, we call, we call, call we talk to God, we call her pastor and we're like, hey, this is what we're doing. Pray on it. Come back to us with what sort of message and stuff you've got. Every move I make is that if it's people I'm engaging with, if it's a business relationship, if it's a personal relationship, I'll talk to God first. And I tell you, it won't be like a, you know, a red herring or some sort of red flag out there but you'll get the feeling right like you you just know something is right or something is wrong so that's my north star every move i make i consult with god first because at the end of the day he knows before i'm gonna make the decision anyway and he knows best and so it it is the it is the foundation and it is the 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 focal point of every move i make and every decision i make i guess really i'm asking for myself how have you been able to figure out like what you want like you're you're, you're very clear in saying hey I want to be a general counsel at a Fortune 500 company, at a public company. Mm -hmm. um, I think senior executive leadership is what I was designed for. Talk to me about how you were able to sort of arrive at that. I think what sort of brought me to this conclusion currently is that one, I had to figure out what brought me joy in my current role. And what brought me joy in my current role was being at the table. Right. And being able to sort of not only um, influence business decisions, but influence culture. And again, it goes back to what's important to me. What's important to me being black, being a woman and being an immigrant. And I use corporate America or I see corporate America as a vessel to make make things better for those demographics and the easiest way and the best way you can make things better for those demographics is having a seat at the table right and the best seat you can have at the table is an executive seat at the table mm -hmm. right those are people who control the purse strings and so that's when it's like okay you have to be in the c-suite okay and i'm a lawyer how do i get to the c-suite in a corporation being a lawyer that's by being a chief legal officer that's by being a general counsel i wanted to be at a public company one because i still want to develop my legal acumen right i mm -hmm. still want to be a great lawyer you you get a different skill set um, in in a, a public company. And then two, public companies have a lot of power. Like, let's mm -hmm. be honest, when you think of like the people who are movers and shakers, public companies have a lot of control. You look at the Disney's, you look at the Apple's, you look at the Coca-Cola's, you look at the mm -hmm. Google's, you look at the Amazon's, they are moving society, mm -hmm. right? Society moves when they say move, mm -hmm. right? And so I understand the innate power that's ingrained in being a public company. And so that's how I sort of formulated this idea. And I'm gonna be completely honest. I'm gonna be completely candid. The other piece is my parents made a sacrifice. It is my responsibility that in their old age, I give them ease. And you give them ease in this capitalistic society by making money. That's the reality of it. Yeah. We all work because we get compensated for it. We wouldn't be doing any of what we're doing for free. Mm -hmm. And the quickest way to build wealth in this country, or one of the quickest ways to build wealth, is by getting shares and uh, stock in mm -hmm. public companies, mm -hmm. right? And people don't realize this. I mean, I know you guys do. I'm sure you guys do because we're learning like that. But a lot of these executives income, they're not getting paid in base compensation. Mm -hmm. They get paid. They got. A millions of shares of whatever company they're working at right and i have to master master this game because i think the full culmination of the american dream is being that for my parents right mm -hmm. and and getting that and accomplishing that and so i want to make sure again that they look back at their life they're in my my dad is what 70 my mom is in her mid 60s mm -hmm. you know i want them to be able to look back and say their sacrifices were worth it and part of that the reality of it is being financially well off and financially astute and so mm -hmm. Putting all of that together, I'm like, okay, this is where I want to go. Again, I might look two years from now and say, hey, I don't, because there are real, so I feel like one of the things our, one of the things our generation gets wrong is that everyone wants the title and the honor and the accolades without doing the work. Mm -hmm. These people, people in C-suite positions just aren't sitting on their butt, right? Like, don't get me wrong. They make their wealth from people being beneath them. But they do work. It's a true sacrifice. I look at general counsels now and I look at executives. They don't have a lot of disposable time. Mm -hmm. You know, all the things that we get joy doing now, like podcasts and running our own nonprofits and doing this and doing that. They don't have a lot of time for that. And so, you know, maybe two years after I sit and look and I evaluate that sacrifice they make, I might not want that lifestyle for me, right? Mm -hmm. And sitting in the upper middle class will be good for me. Um, but right now, that's, that's what I'm aiming for. Mm -hmm. And that's how I got to that sort of decision. Can you speak on the importance of uh, being a diverse person at that table as well mm. as a black woman? Like, because that's another different, you know, you're, you, a lot of times <laughs> you're around a lot of older white dudes. Mm -hmm. Like, talk about, like, 
how important that is and how you impact the conversation, I guess. Yeah. So, you know, one thing people didn't know, or they might know, you know, about my time in bed, I feel like I was a pseudo DNI professional. I had assumed a lot of roles that were sort of inculcated in their sort of cultural plan. Mm -hmm. And so I led their women's resource group. I served on the multicultural resource group. I helped sort of um, manifest the first multicultural conference they had. So I did a lot of DNI work at Beard. Um, and the reality of it, and what I always used to tell people in my previous role, what I tell people now, now, you're not changing no 60-year-old white man's way of thinking, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Like, you just, mm -hmm. if, if they conservative leaning, if they feel this kind of way, like, nine times out of ten, they're staying there. But I think the importance of being at the table is that you give them a particular sensitivity to when they encounter people like you, mm -hmm. right? And I think the people, the problem that people like us forget, people who are sort of like, we're well-to-do, like, we're accomplished, and I don't even think we realize that sometimes, like, we, we're doing well for ourselves, right? The thing that we forget is that they're going to accept you. They're going to accept every black lawyer that look like you, right? Because you're a black lawyer, you got a degree. What you need to get them to know is that if they encounter being fully transparent, the black girl in the hood that don't look like you, that don't got on, you know, her nice little suit, that don't got on her designer shoes, that don't got her designer bag, they approach her with that same respect mm -hmm. and they give her the same grace. And that's what I feel like being at the table in an organization does. It gives them exposure to different and, and lets them know, hey, yeah, now I'm a corporate transaction attorney that can handle your matters but this is my background I'm a documented immigrant I'm a product of MPS and this is how it started for me and but for time and circumstances I may be that girl I may have been that girl right and so when you're encountering people like that give them grace because it's not a matter of bad choices it's a matter of circumstance mm -hmm. and so I think that's part about that's part of being um at the table. I think another part in the responsibility of being at that table is making it better for people like you so I, one of the reasons I stepped away at Barrett, quite honestly, is that I know if I did not leave, it would be harder for another Black woman lawyer coming in after me. And I'm like, okay, well, I have to be a sacrificial lamb so that they, whoever, if there's someone like me that comes after me, they can leverage their position better. Full transparency. I wasn't getting compensated what I thought I should be getting compensated. And my sort of thought process at the time was if they're not paying me, and I'm seven years practicing, right? I got mm -hmm. all this notoriety. People, let's be honest, people respect me in the community. Mm -hmm. I, I, and I'm a good lawyer. Like, let's be very clear. You have to do your job well first. I'm a great lawyer. Mm -hmm. And you're not compensated me well how well are you going to compensate the next black girl who come in here who only got one year under her belt mm -hmm. right like she has even less bargaining power and for me it was like okay i need to get out the way to make it easier for her so when we're talking about dni in the space it's unfortunately a burden for us as people of color to make things easier for people coming after us mm -hmm. and so how can i be an advocate for other people in this organization or other people coming into this organization who don't have the who don't have the experience as great of an experience as i'm having mm -hmm. i think I mean, first of all, that was fire, right? But I think it's unfortunate that they, uh, the companies do approach it that way. Like, I think um, in order for me to get paid what I think I deserve, I do have to leave or I do have mm -hmm. to go out and get another offer and come back yep. and say, hey, this is what I'm actually worth. Yep. I think it's very unfortunate that we have to, to move that way. Yeah. Ain't it? And 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 too, I, we talked about this earlier. Like, look, no one would guess that, right? And I'm mm -hmm. and I'm, I'm not being disparaged or anything. This is the truth. Like, if, mm -hmm. if this is, it's my reality. No one would have ever guessed with as much as they was promoting me, putting me out there that I wasn't getting paid market. Right. Mm -hmm. But and, and to again, just like divine alignment, how God works with it being an employee market. I had maybe seven to 10 offers mm -hmm. uh, last year, mm -hmm. seven to 10 people come to me and every single one of them was offering me almost twice what I was currently making. Mm -hmm. Wow. <laughs> and I'm like, these are how people who don't who haven't even seen my work product, who are just looking at my LinkedIn or evaluating me and saying what I'm worth. If I present this to you and you don't feel like you could or should or would give me that, mm -hmm. that's very telling. Mm -hmm. And I think we also need to get to again to the point where we're not sold on perks and we're sold on our value right mm -hmm. like it's not enough for you to invite me to a bucks game and give me you know sweet tickets it's not enough to be at the brewers game it's not enough to get this award it's not enough to get this acknowledgement how you truly show people you value them is by paying them their worth and you have right. no problem doing that for white people yep. right so why right. should i as a black person expect anything less mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know one thing, one thing you spoke about, uh, you're preaching, like, you're preaching. Yeah, one, <laughs> I'm telling you. <laughs> one thing you spoke about that I, I, I thought about, uh, I struggle with is just like when you're in the room and you're trying to like with these older white dudes that probably never met a kid from the hood or whatever, like it's, it, it could be easy for them to just be like, Oh, 
he or she is the exception. Right? <laughs> exactly. Like, like they're the exception. And to, to an extent, right? Like given the circumstances we came from, we are an exception, right? right. But as you said, it's uh, like a five second decision that kind of would make me just like the, every. Exactly. I went to Custer High School, which is not like a great high school, right? Mm-hmm. So like I could easily have gone down that path. How do you, uh, I guess handle that like are you more intentional when you have conversations with these people are you I guess more vulnerable more open I guess what what uh mm-hmm. what is what do you uh, how do you approach the situation so the first thing I leave with and that's with anybody anything any discussion I remind young lawyers of this especially young lawyers of color because I we have this thing that I call personally the we've arrived syndrome we get these uh, we get these degrees we get these lofty salaries we get these nice jobs and all of a sudden we think we better than like you're not better than anybody just because you're a lawyer <laughs> like you're not better than anyone because you're a doctor you're literally not right mm-hmm. <laughs> like mm-hmm. you're literally not <laughs> like it means nothing no yep. one cares right mm-hmm. and we have this expect like this talented tense like perception right mm-hmm. that we're the top okay. echelon of society you know we're better than we're the ones in our community that have made it out like it's literally circumstances the difference between me and that girl is like she might have had an absentee father and that is that is a product of circumstance too right most people don't make the choice to go wayward or have bad things happen to them so the first thing I leave with I treat the CEO with the same respect I treat the janitor with like that's that's the reality of in fact I might treat the janitor better because he's nicer to me you know like (laughs) that's that's the first thing and so when I go in these rooms I don't get like um flustered by people with high titles like I don't get flustered by people with again the difference between you and me is circumstance right Mm -hmm. the difference between you and me is privilege and so Mm -hmm. at the end of that and especially because I'm such a spiritually grounded person like in the eyes of God we equals for real so it gives me that much like um you know people always say like you're so authentic and you're like so honest and you're so real like when you view people in that light when you view them in a spiritual light it's so much easier to engage with them it's so much easier to be authentic with them like it's so much easier so that's sort of I don't even think about approaching the conversations. Mm-hmm. This just hap- happens naturally just because is. I view mm-hmm. you as an equal. Yeah, it yeah. just is, mm-hmm. right? And I tell you about authentic experiences. Like, you know, one program um, Barry used to have when, and still currently has is a reverse mentoring program where they would take high visibility and high accomplished um, associates. That's what we call our employees at Barry, associates of color and pair them with the executive and you would mentor them. And, you know, I had, um, they intentionally paired me with one of the highest um, executives and he's a middle-aged white man, well-to-do, got two houses, you know, is well-groomed, got suit, you know, wear the best suits, all of that, you know, fine leather goods, all of that. And we had real conversations. Like we're going to talk about Midtown. We're going to talk about George Floyd. We're going to talk about, and again, I didn't have any hesitation because I viewed him as an equal, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and so it's, again, it's not something I think about. It just, it just happens. It just happens. And I, I like to think part of it is just the God in me, right. And, and viewing people in scenarios from that lens, but it just happens. Mm-hmm. One thing you mentioned is that sometimes, uh, People uh, have a little bit of success and then they think they're better than others, um, mm-hmm. especially I, I find that happens in Milwaukee, the whole crab in the barrel mentality. And, mm-hmm. um, yeah, one time, w- one time we were one time we were texting and then <laughs> I forgot we were texting about basically you were like. People want to get their name in, in a news article and things like that so bad that you can't even really tell like what they're doing or how they're impacting change, right? Mm-hmm. Like they, they, they're more so chasing headlines. Um, where do you think that line is between promoting yourself uh, and, you know, building your brand versus just straight up arrogance, right? So the line between brand, building your brand and arrogance, yeah, I, yeah. I'll be honest, it's a tricky line, right? Especially, I think, again, the, the, the double-edged sword of our generation is social media right? And that's the first place people run to to learn about people. That's the first, whether it's personally, professionally, like it's social media. That's the first place you go to. And the reality of social media and the way the algorithms work is you have to be constantly promoting and constantly talking and constantly sharing for you to show up, right? For you to pop up. It's, it's, (laughs) It's so funny. I was reading something and they were like, 
social media is a drug and the way they capitalize on that drug is by getting you to share more and talk more and divulge more like and if you don't that the, the drug doesn't do what it's supposed to do unless you do more of it right unless you take indulging in more and so it's truly a drug and again the people who talk the most engage the most you see them the most on your timeline you see them on the most on your linkedin feed um you know for me i do think i'll be honest i succumb to some of that and i still succumb to some of that now like especially early on in my career when i felt like i had to build my platform and get more visibility. Um, to be fully transparent, I in the first my first two careers, I felt like I was at organizations that didn't have a ton of like local notoriety or local visibility, and so I felt like I had to do so much more to get my name out there. And then once I got to Baird, I'm at this huge organization. Everyone knows I have a great reputation. I felt like I had to sustain that. I think the privilege of having you know put in the work I did at Baird and gotten all that I got from it is that now I can fall back a little bit and I can let things sort of naturally take its course, like. No one's going to forget about you because you don't post your award on LinkedIn, right? <laughs> like, no one's going to think that you're not doing the work because you don't share it on Instagram, right? And if that's what they think, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter because what are you doing it for? And I think that's the constant reminder I have to give myself. What are you doing it for? Because if what you're doing it for is what you're saying you're doing it for, you don't care if you don't get applause, right? Mm. If you live by the cheers, you'll die by the booze, right? Yeah. And so... It's so important for me. And I'm still working. I haven't mastered it. Like, I, again, if I got a word tomorrow, I'm not going to tell you I'm not going to post it on LinkedIn. But it's just like it, too much of it, right, can be toxic. And then I think part of it is the internal effect. When you completely, when you feel like you every accomplishment you have to post or you're not important if you don't have an accomplishment, when you don't have an accomplishment, you feel useless, right? Mm -hmm. You feel like you feel insufficient. And so I think it's important to sort of um, reel yourself back from that a bit. I think... Um, you know, the, the line between sort of promoting yourself, because again, you do have to promote yourself if you don't, if you don't say anything, do people know about you? And like sort of arrogance is again, authenticity. Like, I'm gonna be honest, like people be buying followers and stuff. I'm never doing that. Like, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm mm -hmm. never buying a follower. Mm -hmm. I'm never getting on TikTok and dancing to get you to support me. Mm -hmm. Not because I don't, <laughs> for who it works for, it works for. But that's not true to me. Like, mm -hmm. I, I wouldn't, and I'm so big on too, like someone, I, I'm, I read a lot of articles. I'm always reading like a lot of anecdotal stuff. The days when Instagram is down and the days when TikTok are down, you have to ask yourself, will people still go intentionally looking for me? If people won't go looking for you when it ain't social media, then you're not doing something right with your branding right? Mm -hmm. Like if your branding is solely based on social media, the day Instagram has a bad day or the day when this stuff is extinct, who knows how long it'll be around for? You still have to be relevant. And so that's what sort of like keeps me like, okay, you have to build something authentic, mm -hmm. right? Um, and then, yeah, you can't be like, <laughs> I'm, I'm learning this again. The internet is not real. Yeah. Like you don't know these people. These people don't know you. You know, you only see the highlight reels. And if you're beholden to those people's likes and those people's shares and their loves and their hearts, like, what does that even mean? Mm -hmm. What does that even mean? And then again, where I'm at now, where I'm about securing the bag, it's also not dollars. Like if it don't make dollars, it don't make sense. I was, it was something on, I think it was on the Breakfast Club. Again, another anecdote. There was this influencer and she had like millions of followers. And she promoted something. And, you know, when you have a ton of followers, these brands pay you to pr promote for them. Mm -hmm. And they said she promoted something and the brand couldn't get one sale. This girl had had like millions of followers, couldn't get mm -hmm. one sale. And then you see people with like 100, 200 followers, they get tons of sales. And I'm, I always remind myself, a large following is not a loyal following. Mm. Right. People have to be connected to something authentically. If people are just following you and following your story because someone just shared their name and they thought your page looked cool or the aesthetic of your page was nice or you had, you know, a good visual, that doesn't mean that they're really sold you know, sold and, and bought into what you're doing. And I think the benefit of the way I've done things, and that's not to say I'm a guru on, on all of this, is people come to me because they ha they've heard my story first, right? People follow, they, they, they buy into that story. And when there's like an attachment to that, then it's more they're more inclined to be loyal to you and what you're doing. And so I grow organically. I never need a million followers, but as long as you support what I'm doing, you know, you, you don't even have to buy a shirt quite honestly, but if you go tell my story to someone else, if you tell somebody to watch my Ted talks, that's all I need. And again, it's rooted in that purpose. If someone goes to your, your page, your LinkedIn page, social media, whatever, what do you want them to take from your page or, mm. or your social media? Like what, what is, that's what would a good you want question. them to question. That's a good question. I think uh, 
what I would want them to take is obviously that, you know, um, I'm a professional and, and I'm a professional that leads in excellence. But I think the first thing I want to, I would want them to take away is that I'm someone who cares about people. Like I care about things outside of myself. And that's evidence through my community commitments is evidence through my personal efforts is evidence even through my career, but I'm someone like I genuinely care about people. I care about you. I care about things impacting you mm-hmm. I care about things impacting your livelihood. I care about things impacting your well-being, And I hope that resonates through, through all of my pages, whether it's LinkedIn, whether it's Facebook, whether it's Instagram. And then immediately after, I want you to know I'm about my business and everything I do. Like I lead with excellence. If it's not excellence, I don't want it. I don't want it attached to me. Like I'm about my business and I give a thousand percent to everything I do. I think one thing that I want to do is uh, have our listeners get to know you a little better. So I've got a series of, I'll call them rap, rapid fire questions. Um, and I want to just whatever, 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 comes, whatever comes to mind for you. Um, I'd be curious to hear your, your, your thoughts. So, okay. um, one book that has greatly influenced your life. If you have one. Talking to strangers, Malcolm Gladwell. It's mm. the best advice you, you've ever received. You're your own best advocate. Do you have a personal mantra? Um, kill them with success, bury them with a smile. One word to describe your legacy. Intentional. Yeah. No, and, and with that, uh, I think this was a great conversation. Uh, just give the people uh, your handles and let them know where they can find Oh, Lord. Okay. I got a lot of handles. No. <laughs> <laughs> so on LinkedIn, it's Isioma Wabuzer, I-S-I-O-M-A, last name N-W-A-B-U-Z-O-R. Um, on Instagram and Facebook, it's at Isioma N. And on Twitter, it's at Isioma Wabuzer. So you can find me on any of those. And through any of those, you can catch, connect with me on others. And then my website is www.iamisioma.com. Yo, and as she said, she's doing nothing but answering DMs. So <laughs> if you got if you got questions, if you got questions, let her know. Look, I'm, I'm gonna slide in the DM. Let look. her know. No, I'm joking. I'm, joking. No, I'm so I'm so I'm so glad we could have this conversation. Now people get to see people get to see like why I consider you see, I'm a, like a really good friend, but also somebody that I draw a ton of inspiration from. So no. you know, so thank you for giving us your time. I genuinely appreciate you. Y'all know I got mad. I say it so, and I don't just say y'all. Y'all know me. Like I, I got mad love for y'all, and I, I commend y'all for all that y'all are to, um, you know, to the culture, to what y'all represent. Like I have so much love, regard, and respect for you guys. So it's my absolute honor, and I, this was a great way to spend my Sunday. So. Hey, there we go. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you.